Uh, we've already been speaking today, haven't we, about um, trials and suffering and, and uh, different things. And uh, Cam spoke, has been speaking over this month about perseverance. Perseverance, uh, he started off speaking about perseverance in terms of um, uh, persevering for Christ's return and then persevering through following Christ, persevering for an enduring hope and a, and a future hope. And last week he spoke about, um, about persevering through persecution. And I guess what I've got to say today follows on from that um, in, in ways of persevering through trials and struggles. and It's not an easy subject to get together, I can promise you. I'm usually the guy that jokes around about stuff, but this is a hard one to to uh, to do that with. But how do you like my picture? That's that's a word picture, isn't it? You can actually see that tree if you head down to Picnity Ponds and turn in, uh, have a look on the right side in the paddock. That tree is persevering. He's literally 500 meters from the beach, so he's had a hard life. Do you remember your? Do you remember your verses? Have you been practicing? Add to faith. No one remembers. Add to faith, goodness. And to goodness, add. You've had weeks to learn this. Weeks um, knowledge. And to knowledge, add. Now, wisdom was part of knowledge. Wisdom and self-control. And that. And to self-control, perseverance. And I get to have the last word on perseverance. So I get to put the last board on. Does that look straight? There we go. Um, and to, um, to start with, I'd like to pray because uh, we have John Mackay that's uh, quite ill. He's heading up to Adelaide if he's not there already. He's heading to Flinders. Yeah. He's in a bad way. He's got some blocked arteries. He's uh, had a, a bit of a stroke that no one's picked up. Uh, and he's, he's quite worried about his own health. So would you join with me, please, in praying for him? Lord, we bring to you our friend John Mackay, a, a man who has only in recent years put his faith and trust in you. And now he's worried. He's, he's in hospital. He's heading to hospital next week. Would you be with him, Lord? Would you help him to persevere through this thing? We pray, pray, pray for, for the clearing of his arteries. We pray for health and well-being to come back to his body. We pray that fear would leave him, his mind. May he know above all things that you are with him. May he know that not only you are with him, that we are praying for him. May, may you sense 
all of this church with him today. Take away fear. May you sense the Holy Spirit powerfully. Amen. So as I said, I wanted to speak about um, suffering, uh, persevering through suffering and trial. We're told that we are to persevere, aren't we? That it will help, that it will mature us, that it will help us with our, develop our character. Open up the Bible to whatever page you like, and there will be someone who either has or is or will need to persevere through some kind of struggle or trial. Whether it's war or famine or poverty or sickness or sin or, or uh, being chained up in prison, there will be something, whether it's, it's persecution or pain, there will be something that people will need God's help to overcome. It's true with all these attributes that we've been looking at with faith and, and, and goodness and knowledge and 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 self-control and perseverance. Is, there is a balancing act, isn't there? There is, there is a place... Now, Peter starts that verse by... says, make every effort. There's going to be some effort to build this stuff in our lives. There's going to be a bit of sweat. There's going to be a bit of our own strength exercise. But there's a balancing act between that and being guided by the Holy Spirit and trusting in His strength also and, and trusting in His grace in the midst of it. but we do not overcome by ourselves, nor will God do everything for us. He wants us to mature. But is there a point to this? Is there a point to all this perseverance? Or do we just get up in the morning, grit our teeth, struggle and persevere through the day so that we can get to bed, so we can get up in the morning, so we can grit our teeth, so we can struggle and persevere through the day, so we can get up in the morning... To grit, you know, it's if we can just get to the weekend, then we can rest for a bit, so we can get back to Monday and do it all again. Is there a point to it all? There must be more to this life than just fighting the long defeat, right? For the Christian, persevering has a point. We don't just persevere because God loves to see us sweat. <laughs> sweat or squirm, it has a point. I'm reminded of a, by a famous quote of Homer J. Simpson, who, uh, I forget the actual show and what was going on, but he was going through his own struggles and he says to Marge, Marge, God is teasing me, like he teased Moses in the desert. Marge had to quietly instruct him, no, God tested Moses, Homer. He tested Moses. But Homer Simpson is not the only person who thinks that God works like that. That he's just a big bully of a kid with a magnifying glass wanting to burn off our feelers. And that he's somehow just teasing us. Maybe some of you feel like that today. That the thing you're going through is some kind of a sick joke. And does God even notice? Now, there is a verse in the Bible that's quoted probably more than, than any other part of the Bible in, in Psalm 
37. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It's a lovely verse, isn't it? And actually the context around that is, is about speaking about trusting God, it's about doing good and committing our way to God and then he'll give us the desires of our heart. I, I believe it's the truth. It's in the Bible for a reason. Call me crazy, but I'd actually like to see a few Christians pray like that. I'd actually like to see some Christians with a bit more desire, a bit more godly ambition, if that's the right word. To see someone with a few dreams and a few few burning passions that you'll have to take a risk on. To have a few grand designs. And take those things, those desires and those passions that you have, box them up, put a, put a bow on it, take it to God in prayer and say, Lord, what do you think of this? Are you in this? Are you, are you part of this? Is this your will? And if he says yes, hang on to your seat. It's my opinion that, that God does grant us these things. He does grant us the, the desires of our heart. But in the process of us getting the desires of our heart, he tends to get the desires of his heart. And what's the desires of God's heart? It's you. But it's not just you. It's the best kind of you that there can be. It's, it's you with all these attributes. It's the Christian with the faith and the knowledge and goodness and self-control and, and perseverance. It's the package. It's a, it's a Holy Spirit-filled, mature, kind, prayerful, real, humble Christian. A wise follower of Christ. You see, I, I, I believe God gives us these desires of our heart, but I don't believe you get those things with the microwave Christian. You know the microwave Christian? You pray for something really quick, you chuck it in God's, in in his vision, you pray for it for five minutes and and you're done. I find that God actually works with the slow cooker. Have you you noticed that? I've I've experienced the slow cooker. Have Have you experienced the slow cooker? It's uncomfortable, it's painful, and you don't know how long it's going to go on for. But the slow cooker will usually turn out the best kind of tasting meal, won't it? Unless it's a steak and you'll need to put it on the grill. But Like the potter at the wheel, God will eventually get the shape of the Christian that he desired. And in Peter's second letter, the one we're using for this under construction theme, he says in chapter 2, and he's, he's talking, in context he's speaking about um, God rescuing Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah before it was all burned up, you know. So, and he, in that context he says in, in chapter 2, if this is so, and the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment, speaking about rescuing Lot. Now how can it be that here he is, Peter's speaking about rescuing you guys from trials when he himself is on death row. He is awaiting execution. 
He says in, in verse 15, he's, he's actually speaking about his departure, not a holiday, his imminent death. How can he say that God will rescue from trial when it seems like he's resigned himself to the fact that God's not going to rescue him this time? He certainly has the authority to say that. This is the same Peter a few years ago, you might remember, in chains, in prison, and the church prayed for him. Next thing you know, an angel just turns up and says, Peter, time to go. The chains fall off and the doors open and he just walks out of there. He has all the authority to say, God's going to rescue you from trials. But what is the point of persevering through trials when it seems that sometimes God will rescue you and sometimes he doesn't? There is nothing new about God's people suffering through adversity and trial. We've we've been speaking about Peter here in the first century. I want to take you back about 2,000 years before Peter's time. So it's about 4,000 years from now. And we bump into a guy named Isaac. You know Isaac? A man apparently blessed by God. He has inherited a whole lot of blessing from his father Abraham. But when his father dies, he, he inherit, Isaac inherits the lot. He's the, he's the chosen son. He's the only son. Uh, so he's a very wealthy guy. We know that he's, he's, there's gold and silver there, but mostly of his wealth is, is in livestock. They lived a nomadic life, so most of their, their wealth is in sheep and goats. And there came a time in Israel, or Canaan as it was then, that there was a famine in the land. Now, famine in the land in Canaan is quite common because it's a semi-arid sort of land and what causes a famine? A lack of, a lack of food. Australians ought to know that because we live in one too. A lack of rain. Drought. So what happens in, in this in this dry time, God appears to Isaac and says, well, go down to live with the Philistines. Now, this is long before there were enemies with them, so they were on sort of good terms. So he went down there and the leaders of the Philistines said to Isaac, look, I'll, uh, we'll give you this land, you can um, set up shop and you can uh, live there for a while, that's fine. So he does that. And he, he plants this crop, this whatever the crop is, but he, he has this hugely successful crop. It's a hundredfold, it says. In a drought, that's quite, a, quite an achievement, isn't it? Um, we need to keep in mind that although Isaac is a wealthy guy, he's not, he doesn't actually own any land. He's a, he's a nomad. So he, here he is in the Philistines, the land of the Philistines. He does quite well. And now that this, this blessing that God has on his, on his life starts to feel like a bit of a curse because there's this jealousy that comes from the Philistine people seeing, seeing Isaac do well and they say, well, you're, you're robbing from us so go, get out, go back where you came from is basically the message. If they had half a brain, they'd know that um, Isaac, living as a wealthy guy in their land, would probably spend a lot of the wealth in the land of the Philistines and they'd all benefit from the, the economy, you know what I mean? 
But they didn't see that. They kicked him out. And they, they forced Isaac out into a region of Canaan called the Negev. Have you heard that phrase? The Negev? The, the Negev translated means the dry. So he gets pushed out to the dry in the dry, in, the, in a drought. And suddenly he's got all these, this wealth in terms of livestock that he has to try and feed. Not only feed, he has to give them a drink. And to make matters worse, the, uh, the Philistines, this jealousy has, has enraged them so much, they, they go out and they fill up all the wells that Isaac's father had dug years before. They, they just blocked them all up. So now these servants don't, not only have to dig out these old wells and get water again, they have to dig some new ones and they don't know if they're going to get water or not. Actually, one of these wells is, is quite famous for Australian people because their soldiers drank out of the well at Beersheba in World War I, which is another story, but a good one. He is a wealthy guy. You could, you could buy feed, I suppose, for your stock and, and bring it in, but it, any uh, farmer would know that it won't take too long when all your resources are used up when you're trying to feed a thousand odd thousands of sheep in the desert in the middle of a drought. So what does the man Isaac, the man blessed by God, do? When you run out of ideas, when you run out of hope, when all this blessing seems to shrivel up and you seem to be, seem to be left alone. Bible says that he calls on the name of the Lord. You know there is praying and there is calling on the name of the Lord and it's a huge difference. There's something born out of a a desperation when you call on the name of the Lord, a realisation of the truth that God is your only hope. And not only is he your only hope, he was the whole time. I, I really wish actually Christians would learn how to do less praying and do more calling on the name of the Lord. To get a little desperate, it catches God's attention. And it certainly caught God's attention in this case because Isaac, resp- uh, Isaac hears from God in this place. He, God responds to him. And in that, that place near Bathsheba, and God speaks to Isaac, he says this. No, he says this. The Lord appeared to him and said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Don't be afraid. I am with you. These are the very same words that get repeated to people all through history, that call on God for help. You know how much more important Isaac was than you to God? Zero. Just the same. We get the same response when we cry out to God. It's these same words that get repeated from the mouth of God all through history. The words may change a little bit, but the truth is the same. Whenever someone calls on the name of the Lord, he gets 
they get this response. I am your God, I am with you, don't be afraid. I'm not sure we're in sort of no order here. Moses, in, in Exodus chapter to 3, verse 6, I'm the God of your father. Verse 12 said, I'll be with you. And this will be a sign, this is at the burning bush, okay? This will be a sign that, uh, to you that it is I who sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. Translation, Moses, I am your God. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Joshua gets the, ver- gets the command from God in verse 9, chapter 1. Have I not commanded you, be strong and be very courageous. Don't be terrified, don't be discouraged. For the, you, for the Lord your God will be with you in all that you do. Translation, I am your God, I am with you, don't be afraid. Mr. Thief, next to Christ on the cross. It's in a difficult situation, but um, what, remember what he says? Cries out to, in desperation to God, to, to Jesus, says, remember me, just remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, there's only one guy that has the authority to say that he'll be with him in paradise, and that's God. So here's Jesus saying, I'm God, and I'm going to be with you later on in paradise. Translation, Mr. Thief, poor guy, he doesn't have a name. We don't, we'll meet this guy in heaven, we don't even know his name. I'm the thief. I'm, I'm your God, I'm with you, don't be afraid. In Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen, first ever martyr for the cause of Christ. He doesn't actually hear words from God. He has, has this sort of a, a vision, like a word picture, if you like. After he's finished preaching to the, the religious leaders and they get pretty cranky with him, he sees this vision and he says, um, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There's, there's a, a message in that that he hears. What is it? Stephen, I am your God. I am with you. Don't be afraid. Just before a bunch of angry men stoned him to death. What about Paul? If there's ever a guy that's had the worst luck in the Bible, it's Paul. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. The next verse says, says, I, Jesus speaking, will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 27, verse 23, Paul's speaking to the men on the ship as he's in that storm and the, the ship's about to get wrecked. He said, last night an angel of God whom I serve, whose I am and whom I serve, said, don't be afraid, Paul. Paul that 
has the worst luck of any Christian in the Bible? What's the message that God gives him in his whole struggle and trial? Paul, I'm your God, I'm with you, don't be afraid. It's tough stuff, isn't it, to talk about this? Some might easily say, well, God wasn't really there for Stephen or Peter or Paul because they died, right? Well, so did Isaac. So did Moses. So did Joshua, except they just died in their beds, except Moses who died on top of a mountain. It's a tough subject, but there is no way to avoid the fact that one day you and I will die. This is usually the point in, in time in our trial when we try to tell God what his job is. For some reason, it was God's will for Stephen to die at this time. For some reason, it was God's plan for Paul to suffer and die the way he did. And for some reason, God didn't spare the life of the thief next to Jesus on the cross. But it's not our job to live someone else's life and it's not our job to question God's plans. But we can rest in the knowledge that just like God and as he comes to all these men, he comes to us in the middle of our difficulty, in the middle, middle of our trial, in the middle of our struggle, just as he came to Isaac a few thousand years ago and same, with the same promise, I am your God, I am with you, don't be afraid. That's worth persevering for, isn't it? We spoke about Peter in the first century. We've gone back in time to 2,000 years from there. I want to bring, I want to bring you now up to sort of in between Peter and our time, really. I want to speak about the year is uh, 878 AD. And a man named Alfred is hiding out in a swamp in a place called Athelney in Wessex, England. We should learn more medieval literature, don't you think? It's, it's so cool. This is the stuff, this is the time of, you know, knights and, and chivalry and kings and castles. We should be learning more of that stuff. It's great fun. I wouldn't like to be living in there, but it's great fun to learn about it. This is, this is Britain post-Rome, okay? A few hundred years before this, Rome has left. They've withdrawn back to their home. And Britain, much like uh, regions of, of Europe, have there's this power vacuum. And so everyone is sort of defending their own little kingdoms, you know what I mean? And, and Britain is no exception. He is hiding out, Alfred is hiding out in uh, this swamp. He used to be the king until his neighbour called Guthrum from East Anglia has invaded him and he's won the battle and now he's hunting down the leftovers of their army. And all that's left is King Alfred in this swamp hiding out with a few of his close men waiting to see what happens. 
And Guthrum is a Viking king. He's a worshiper, worshiper of the, the Norse gods, you know, like Odin and Woden and all them. And, and they were much in the same train as, uh, as um, all of Britain, actually, was like this at the moment. But it was a, as a religion based on the worship of your ancestors. You know, it's, it's a funny thing that not to, you know, go back in history far enough, us whitefellas weren't that far away from our indigenous guys in Australia. We worshipped our ancestors. Christianity has come to Britain a few hundred years before this and it was quite successful. Actually, many of the, of the smaller states in Britain converted to Christianity and was very popular. But in the ups and down natures of, of what people are, the faith of the Britain uh, island has waned. The British island has, has waned. And the smaller kingdoms are reverted back to their old ways, worshipping their ancestors. All of them except one, which is King Alfred, in the middle of a swamp, hiding out with a few of his men. What do you do? when you're the only Christian king left and you're hiding out in the swamp and you're just waiting for the inevitable to be found and killed. We don't know exactly what he did. We know exactly what he said. This being the Dark Ages, we don't know a whole lot of history about the time. We can only guess that the last of the Christian kings sitting in, in Athelney said something like you and I would say in this, in this time. God, where are you? Have you abandoned us? Have you, have you just left us for dead? I've served you my whole life and this is it. Alfred wasn't actually meant to be king at all. He was the youngest of five brothers. But this thing time it is, mean that either through death, uh, through, through death, through battle or through illness, each one of his brothers has dropped off the perch and he's the only one left. So he wasn't even supposed to be here. But here he is. I can't say for certain, I can only guess what, what God has said through his servants all through history. I can only guess through what God has encouraged me with in times of trials. What would have been the words that came to Alfred as he sat in that swamp? I can only guess. Alfred, I am with you. I am your God. Don't be afraid. How much we need to hear those words from God when we're persevering for his sake, for his, for his calling and the race that we're running. What we do know is this, that he's, after three months of hiding out in the swamp, he takes his men and he, he leaves and he, he, the first place he goes to is one of the closest barons that he knows of and he gets uh, them, that, that baron of, of Wessex to swear allegiance to the king again. He didn't really want to swear allegiance to the other Viking guy anyway because he didn't really like him, but he had to to spare his life. But And, and then Alfred went on to the next baron and the next one and so on and, and these got enough support behind him 
and these barons promised enough men that he eventually had enough guys to mount an attack on Guthrum, his enemy. And there we are. If you have white skin today, you're probably our ancestors standing up there ready for war against Cam's ancestors on the other side. The Viking hordes. And against all odds, Alfred wins that battle. Now, what, it's, what you normally do in that time when you win a battle, you, you round up all the leaders of your enemy, you get their family, you get their kids, and you kill them to make sure they'll never, ever come back and try and take your kingdom again. Alfred actually surprises them. He surprises them with being a Christian. And he said, I'm going to give you a pardon, all of you. There was a, even a time when Alfred's, uh, when Guthrum's wife was taken captivity by Alfred's men and he actually put her up in this castle, treated her like a queen. And, and the usual idea of that is when you, you, you exhort um, some sort of money or you get, you know, it's a, it's a hostage situation. So you give me this and I'll give you your wife back. What Alfred actually did, uh, he, he, kept her, he, he looked after her very well, treated her well, and after a, a short amount of time, actually had an attack of conscience and said, no, I'm, I'm just going to let you go with no strings attached. It's not what you do in medieval Britain. But after, to winning, after winning the war, instead of killing off his enemy, he decides something different. He said, I'll pardon you on one condition, that you all follow the Christian God. So he, he marches them down to this freezing cold river and lines them up in front of this terrified monk who one by one baptises these guys, all of the, these knights and thanes and all these guys and baptises them in the river. Now, Alfred's no idiot. He knows that the word of a Viking is not worth the air that it's breathed into, so he, you know, these guys may come back. So he sets about setting up the, the nation. He sets up um, these reforms. He sets up these, uh, what you, you'd call a fortress or a borough. That's what they were. That's where we get our name, like Peterborough and Jedburgh and all these other boroughs that come from this, this name. It's a fortress. And he actually sets up what we'd, we would know as a modern army. He introduces conscription and actually has a roster system. So people was to serve on the army. Uh, they've still got time to go home and, and do their chores, at, do their harvest their crops or whatever they're going to do, but they, they spend time in the army and those, these boroughs would be manned all the time. So any Viking army that comes up the river or on the coast don't have a chance of, of um, conquering them because they know about it before it's happened. How it used to happen is you have, you have to go around to your local barons and, and raise an army and it would take that much time that by the time you organise that, they've already invaded. And there was another reform that King Alfred did in his time. He, he reintroduced, because uh, the nation had walked away from learning and education, so he reintroduced the education. He, he made, made it a priority particularly in the study of Latin. And now scholar, um, secular scholars would say that, well, it was education that saved the nation. I would argue that what were they learning? The text that they were studying most of the time was the Bible. 
It wasn't just an education revolution he was leading here. It was a revival of faith. The Vikings never invaded again. They tried, but failed. In all his efforts, King Alfred led his people back to a stronger commitment in Christ. In time, that would almost lead back to the whole island of Britain turning back to the Christian God. And he was technically the first king of England and the only monarch in British history to ever be called Alfred the Great. No other monarch has ever got that in England. What would have happened if he'd given up in the swamp? What would have happened if he said it's all too hard? If he didn't persevere in the race that God had mapped out for him? We've we spoke about Peter in the first century. We've moved back in time to Isaac. We've come up to the, the ninth century. Now I bring you up to modern day. The year is two thousand and one. And this joker is on an ATV driving across his farm. He's uh, it's a freezing cold Mount Shank day, overcast terrible weather and this guy has thought he's been following Christ, he thought he'd been following God and his plans for his life and I still believe that actually but at the time I didn't feel like it I feel like I'd done everything God asked me to do and now he'd sort of left I, I, I was seeking God for direction and, and what to do, what, what the opportunity was that to expand the business, right? We bought the neighbour's farm, the cows got bigger, the dairy got bigger, everything got bigger, uh, the debt got bigger. There's about six zeros in in play, so you you need to know that, you know, God's doing the right thing here. But I was convinced there was, so I, I signed up. Six months later, we were in the worst drought Australia had seen in 100 years. Our feed prices went sky high, our milk prices went the other way and we were going backwards in a a terrible hurry. I had a call from the the manager, one of the managers in Westpac, uh, this little Hitler that spoke to me for an hour and she basically said at the end of things that I had to pay back 200,000 bucks in about six months which is not possible. We were losing that much in six months. And on top of that, every bit of machinery I touched seemed to break. I had cows dropping dead for no reason. I had vets out. I had everything you could imagine was going wrong. And in the middle of the paddock, I had just, I'd just come back from the vet and she'd given up on this, this cow and she said, oh, you have to get the gun and shoot it. And uh, I was on the way to get that and I switched the bike off in the middle of the paddock in a freezing cold, dreary Mount Shank day and I said, God, I've had enough. I'm sick of it. I've, I thought I followed you. I thought I'd been following you this whole time. 
And now it feels, where are you? Didn't sign up for all this. I have to tell you what happened next changed my life. Um, 20 years and it still chokes me up. Um, Here I was on the bike and I had this sensation that come all over my body. Like It was a freezing cold day. So it's like someone poured a, a bucket of really hot water over my neck and went down my shoulders and down my back and right to my toes. I actually read about stuff like this later and people had described it like a warm blanket someone had put on you. It was just the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, I had words come to me in the back of my head. And I, I joke around and I say, you know, it's like God dropped a coin in the back of your head. And I say, if you're from Allendale, you've got that built in. But it was like that. It was like thoughts that came to me, but they weren't my thoughts. It was a very simple thing. And it said, just said, everything is going to be all right. It's a throwaway line, isn't it? You could say that. wouldn't mean a thing. But these words carried weight. They carried authority. And it wasn't just a nice little suggestion I got from God. I'm totally convinced that it was the truth. He said it was going to be all right. Um, I suddenly had courage from nowhere. This, I, I sort of got back on the bike and got about my things. Nothing really changed in a hurry. Uh, it was still pretty dismal. Um, but six months later, I looked back at that point. I looked back... 20 years later at that point. If our, if our business was a graph, it was going down like that. At that point was the bottom. It's been heading up ever since. And we've had our ups and downs and things at the farm, but basically uh, you know, God has blessed us greatly since then. We're, we're in a much better spot. Uh, we're, a, we're in a, a healthy business. I've been able to grow the business again and, it's, and God has blessed us greatly. So but in the middle of all that despair and that trial, God came to me with words that meant exactly the same as he told Isaac 4,000 years ago. I am your God. I am with you. Don't be afraid. And I think there's plenty of people in this room, and I know a few of you, you need that message today more than anything. He is your God. He is with you. Don't be afraid. Now, the, the skeptics in the world might say, well, the trial that that particular person is facing is actually is going to end in death. Well, for the Christian, that means another whole story. It still doesn't mean that God will ever take away that truth. God is with you. Don't be afraid. Let's pray, shall we?